Chapter 8, Part 2 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice, by George Prentice, Chapter 8, Part 2. The life of a pastor's wife is passed in the midst of mingled gladness and sorrow. While somebody is always rejoicing, somebody, too, is always sick or dying, or else weeping. How often she goes with her husband from the wedding to the funeral, or hurries with him from the funeral to the wedding. And then, perhaps, in her own family circle the same process is repeated. The year 1868 was marked for Mrs. Prentice in an unusual degree, by the sorrowful experience the latter part of may mrs stearns then suffering from an exhausting disease came to new york and spent several weeks in hopes of finding some relief from change of scene but her case grew more alarming she passed the summer at cornwall on the hudson in great pain and feebleness and was then carried home to lie down on her dying bed to mrs stearns newport july seventh eighteen sixty eight we had a dreadful time getting here. I did not sleep a wink. There were 1,250 passengers on board, almost piled on each other, and such screaming of babies it would be hard to equal. There are lots of people here we know. Ever so many stopped to speak to us after church. We are in the midst of a perfect world of show and glitter. But how many empty hearts drive up and down in this gay procession of wealth and fashion? I shall think of you a good deal today as setting forth on your journey and reaching your new home. I do hope you will find it refreshing to go up the river, and that your rooms will be pleasant and airy. We shall be anxious to hear all about it. It is a constant lesson to be with Mrs. McCurdy. I think she is a true Christian in all her views of life and death. Her sweet patience, cheerfulness, and contentment are a continual reproof to me. Here she is so lame that she can go nowhere, a lameness of over twenty years, restricted to the plainest food, liable to die at any moment, yet the very happiest, sunniest creature I ever saw. She says, with tears, that God has been too good to her and given her too much, that she sometimes fears he does not love her because he gives her such prosperity. I reminded her of the four lovely children she had lost. Yes, she says, but how many lovely ones I have left! She says that the long hours she has to spend alone, on account of her physical infirmities, are never lonely or sad. She sings hymns and thinks over to herself all the pleasure she has enjoyed in the past, in her husband and children and devoted servants. She goes up to bed singing, and I hear her singing while she dresses. She said, the other day, that at her funeral she hoped the only services would be prayers and hymns of praise. I think this very remarkable from one who enjoys life as she does. Do the same, Newport, July 20. George and I went to Rochester, taking him with us, last Wednesday and got back Friday night. We had one of those visits that make a mark in one's life, seeing Mr. and Mrs. Leonard and Mrs. Randall and Miss Deborah so fond of us, and altogether we were stirred up as we rarely are, and refreshed beyond description. We rode on Mr. Leonard's beautiful, nameless lake, fished, gathered water lilies, ate black Hamburg grapes, and broiled chickens, and wish you had them in our place. 
Mr. L.'s mother is a sweet, calm old lady, with whom I wanted to have a talk about Christian perfection, in which she believes, but there was no time. It was a great rest to unbend the bowstrung so high here at Newport, where there is so much of receiving and paying visits. I have been reading a delightful French book, The History of a Saintly Catholic Family of Great Talent and Culture, six of whom, in the course of seven years, died the most beautiful, happy death. I am going to make an abstract of it, for I want everybody I love to get the cream of it. You would enjoy it. I do not know whether it has been translated. To the same, Dorset, July 26. Here begins my first letter to you from your old room, whence I hope to write you regularly every week. That is the one only little thing I can do to show how truly and constantly I sympathize with you in your sore straits. It distresses me to hear how much you are suffering, and at the same time not to be near enough to speak a word of good cheer, or to do anything for your comfort. It grieves me to find how insecure my health is, for I had promised to myself to be your loving nurse, should any turn in your disease make it desirable. Miss Lyman boards here, but rooms at the Sykes's, and her friend Miss Warner is also here, but rooms out. Miss W. is in delicate health, takes no tea or coffee, and is full of humor. We have run at and run upon each other, each trying to get the measure of the other, and shall probably end in becoming very good friends. It is a splendid day, and we feel perfectly at home, only missing you, and finding it queer to be occupying your room. What a nice room it is! How I wish you were sitting here with me behind the shade of these maple trees, and that I could know from your own lips just how you are in body and mind. But I suppose the weary, aching body has the soul pretty well enchained. Never mind, dear. It won't be so always. By and by the tables will be turned, and you will be the conqueror. I like to think that far less than a hundred years hence, we shall all be free from the law of sin and death, and happier in one moment of our new existence, than through a whole lifetime here. Rest must and will come, sooner or later, to you and to me and to all of us, and it will be glorious. You may have seen a notice of the death of Professor Hopkins's mother at the age of ninety-five, but for this terribly hot weather I presume she might have lived to be one hundred. I shall not write you such a long letter again, as it will tire you, and if you would rather have two short ones a week, I will do that. Let me know if I tire you. Now good-bye, dear child. May God bless and keep you and give you all the faith and patience you need. To Miss Mary B. Shipman, Dorset, August 2, 1868. We spent rather more than two weeks at Newport, taking two or three days to run to Rochester, Mass., to see some of our old New Bedford friends. We had a charming time with them, as they took us up just where they left us nearly twenty years ago. Oh, how our tongues did fly! We left Newport for home on Tuesday night, about two weeks ago. I went on board and went to bed as well as usual, tossed and turned a few hours, grew faint and began to be sick, as I always am now if I lose my sleep, got out of bed and could not get back again, and so lay on the floor all the rest of the night without a pillow or anything over me and nearly frozen. The boys were asleep, and anyhow it never crossed my mind to let them call George, who was in another stateroom. He says that when he came in, in the morning, I looked as if I had been ill six months, and I am sure I felt so. Imagine the family picture we presented driving from the boat all the way home, George rubbing me with cologne, A fanning me, the rest crying. On Saturday, more dead than alive, I started for this place, and by stopping at Troy four or five hours, 
getting a room and a bed, I got here without much damage. Our house is very pretty, and I suppose it will be done by next year. Oh, how they do poke! George is so happy in watching it, and in working in his woods, that I am perfectly delighted that he has undertaken this project. It may add years to his life. Imagine my surprise at receiving from Scribner a check for $164 for six months of Fred, Maria, and me. The little thing has done well, hasn't it? I feel now as if I should never write any more. Letter writing is only talking and is an amusement, but book writing looks formidable. Excuse this horrid letter, and write and let me know how you are. Meanwhile, collect grasses, dip them in hot water, and sift flour over them. Goodbye, dear. Fred and Maria and me first appeared anonymously in the hours at home in 1865. It had been written several years before, and, without the knowledge of Mrs. Prentice, was offered by a friend to whom she had lent the manuscript, to the Atlantic Monthly and to one or two other magazines, but they all declined it. She herself thus refers to it in a letter to Mrs. Smith, July 13. I have just got hold of the hours at home. I read my article and was disgusted with it. My pride fell below zero, and I wish it would stay there. But the story attracted instant attention. Aunt Avery was especially admired, as depicting a very quaint and interesting type of New England religious character in the earlier half of the century. Such men as the late Dr. Horace Bushnell and Dr. William Adams were unstinted in their praise. In a letter to Mrs. Smith, dated a few months later, Mrs. Prentice writes, Poor old Aunt Avery. She doesn't know what to make of it that folks make so much of her and has to keep wiping her spectacles. I feel entirely indebted to you for this thing ever seeing the light. When published as a book, Fred and Maria and Me was received with great favor and had a wide circulation. In 1874, a German translation appeared. Although no attempt is made to reproduce the Yankee idioms, much of the peculiar spirit and flavor of the original is preserved in this version. To Mrs. H. B. Smith, Dorset, August 4, 1868. Miss Lyman says I have no idea of what Miss W. really is. She looks as if she would drop to pieces, cannot drive out, far less walk, and every word she speaks costs her an effort. Miss Lyman is not well either and what with their health and mine, and A's, I see little of them. But what I do see is delightful, and I feel it to be a real privilege to get what scraps of their society I can. Our house proves to be far prettier and more tasteful than I supposed. I am writing up lots of letters, and if I ever get well enough, shall try to begin on my Katie once more. But since reading the Récit d'une Sœur, I am disgusted with myself and my writings. I ache to have you read it. Miss Lyman and Miss Warner send love to you. I do not like Miss L's hacking cough, and she says she does not believe Miss W will live through the winter. Among us, we contrive to keep up a vast amount of laughter, so we shall probably live forever. August 18th. I have enjoyed Miss Lyman wonderfully, but want to get nearer to her. I see that she is one who does not find it easy to express her deepest and most sacred feelings. I read Katie to her and Miss W., as they were kind enough to propose I should, and they made some valuable suggestions to which I shall attend, if ever I get to feeling able to begin to write again. I am as well as ever, save in one respect, and that is my sleep. I do not sleep as I did before I left home, while I ought to sleep better, as I work several hours a day in the woods, 
in fact, do almost literally nothing else. But after all, we are having the nicest time in the world. I have not seen George so like himself for many years. He lives out of doors, pulls down fences, picks up brushwood, and keeps happy and well. I feel it a real mercy that his thoughts are agreeably occupied this summer, as otherwise he would be incessantly worried about Anna. We work together a good deal. This morning I spoiled a new hatchet in cutting down milkweed where our kitchen garden is to be, and we are literally raising our Ebenezer, which we mean to conceal with vines in due season. George is just as proud of our woods as if he created every tree himself. The minute breakfast is over, the boys dart down to the house like arrows from the bow, and there they are till dinner, after which there is another dart, and it is as much as I can do to get them to bed. I wonder they don't sleep down there on the shavings. The fact is, the whole Prentice family has got a house on the brain. There, this old letter is done, and I am going to bed, all black and blue where I have tumbled down, and as tired as tired can be. August 28th. I made a fire in my woods yesterday, and another today, when I melted glue, and worked at my rustic basket, and felt extremely happy and amiable. September 13th. Miss Warner told me tonight that she thought my Katie story commonplace at the beginning, but that she changed her mind afterward. Of course I wrote a story about that marigold of G.W.'s, and I am dying to inflict it on you. Then if you like it, hurrah! To Miss Woolsey, Dorset, August 13, 1868. I was right glad to get your letter yesterday, and to learn a little of your whereabouts and whatabouts, you may imagine him as seated, spectacles on nose, reading the nation at one end of the table, and her as established at the other. This table is homely, but has a literary look, got up to give an air to our room. Books and papers are artistically scattered over it. We have two bottles of ink apiece, and a box of stamps, a paper cutter, and a pen wiper between us. Two inevitable vases containing ferns, grasses, buttercups, etc., remind us that we are in the country, and a natural bracket regales our august noses with an odor of its own. A can of peaches without any peaches in it holds a specimen like a podium, and a marvelous lantern that folds up into nothing by day and grows big at night brings up the rear. But the most wonderful article in this room is a bookcase made by him, all himself, in which may be seen a big volume of phenylon, Taylor's Holy Living and Dying, The Récit d'une Sœur. Which have you been? Les Soirées de Saint-Petersburg, Prayers of the Ages, A Volume of Geth, Aristotle's Ethics, and some other Greek books, The Life of Mrs. Fry, etc., etc. Such a queer hodgepodge of books as we brought with us, and such a bookcase, the first thing he ever made for her in his mortal life. Our house isn't done and what fun to watch it grow to discuss its merits and demerits to grab every check that comes in from magazine and elsewhere and turn it into chairs and tables and beds and blankets then for them boys what treasures in the way of bits and boards and what feats of climbing and leaping above all think of him in an old banged-in hat and her in a patched old gown gathering brushwood in their woods making it up into heaps and warming themselves by the fires it is a-goin' for to make. Stick after stick did Goody pull. Mr. P. is unusually well. His house is the apple of his eye, 
and he is renewing his youth. Thus far the project has done him a world of good. To Mrs. Stearns, Dorset, September 13, 1863. Yesterday Mr. F. and George drove somewhere to look at sand for mortar, and the horse took fright, and wheeled round and pitched George out, bruising him in several places, but doing no serious harm. But I shudder when I think how the meaning might be taken out of everything in this world, for me, at least, by such an accident. He preached all day today, in the afternoon at Rupert. I find my mission school a good deal of a tax on time and strength, and it is discouraging business, too. One of the boys, fourteen years old, found the idea that God loved him so irresistibly ludicrous that his face was a perfect study. I often think of you as these active limbs of mine take me over woods and fields and remind myself that the supreme happiness of my father's life came to him when he called himself what you call yourself, a cripple. If it is not an expensive book, I think you had better buy a sister's story, of which I wrote to you, as it would be a nice Sunday book to last some time the Catholicism you would not mind, and the cultivated, high-toned Christian character you would enjoy. The boys complain, as George and I do, that the days are not half long enough. They have got their bedsteads and washstands done, and are now going to make couches for George and myself, and an indefinite number of other articles. September 20th. I am greatly relieved, my dear Anna, to hear that you have got safely into your new home, and that you'd like it, and long to see you face to face. George has no doubt told you what a happy summer we have had. It has not been unmingled happiness that is not to be found in this world, but in many ways it has been pleasant in spite of what infirmities of the flesh we carry with us everywhere. Our anxiety about and sympathy with you, and the other cares and solicitudes that are inseparable from humanity. I had a great deal of comfort in seeing Miss Lyman while she was here, and in knowing her better, and now I am finding myself quite in love with her intimate friend, Miss Warner, who has been here all summer. A gentler, tenderer spirit cannot exist. Mrs. F.'s brother was here with his wife some weeks ago, and they were summoned home to the deathbed of their last surviving child. Mrs. F. read me a letter yesterday describing her last hours, which were really touching and beautiful, especially the distributing among her friends the various pretty things she had made for them during her illness as parting gifts. I suppose this will be my last letter from Dorset, and from your old room. Well, you and I have passed some happy hours under this roof. Goodbye, dear, with love to each and all of your beloved ones. To Miss Eliza A. Warner, Dorset, September 27, 1868. I was so nearly frantic, my dear Fanny, from want of sleep, that I could not feel anything. I was perfectly stupid, and all the way home from East Dorset hardly spoke a word to my dear John, nor did he to me. The next day he said such lovely things to me that I hardly knew whether I was in the body or out of it, and then came your letter, as if to make my cup run over. I longed for you last night, and it is lucky for your frail body that can bear so little that you were not in your little room at Mrs. G.'s, but not at all lucky for your heart and soul. I hope God will bless us to each other. It is not enough that we find, in our mutual affection, something cheering and comforting. It must make us more perfectly his. What a wonderful thing it is that coming here entire strangers to each other, we part as if we had known each other half a century. 
I am not afraid that we shall get tired of each other. The great point of union is that we have gone to our Savior, hand in hand, on the supreme errand of life, and have not come away empty. All my meditations bring me back to that point, or, I should rather say, to Him. I came here praying that in some way I might do something for Him. The summer has gone, and I am grieved that I have not been, from its beginning to its end, so like Him, so full of Him, as to constrain everybody I met to love Him too. Isn't there such power in a holy life, and have not some lived such a life? I hardly know whether to rejoice most in my love for Him, or to mourn over my meager love, so I do both. When I think that I have a new friend who will be indulgent to my imperfections, and is determined to find something in me to love, I am glad and thankful. But when, added to that, I know she will pray for me, and so help my poor soul heavenward, it does seem as if God has been too good to me. You can do it lying down or sitting up, or when you are among other friends. It is true, as you say, that I do not think much of lying down prayer, in my own case, but I have not a week back and do not need such an attitude and the praying we do by the wayside, in cars and steamboats, in streets and in crowds, perhaps keeps us more near to Christ than long prayers and solitude could without the help of these little messengers that hardly ever stop running to Him and coming back with the grace every moment needs. You can put me into some of these silent petitions when you are too tired to pray for me otherwise. I have been writing this in my shawl and bonnet, expecting every instant to hear the bell toll for church, and now it is time to go. Goodbye, dear, till by and by. Well, I have been and come, and, wonder of wonders, I have had a little tiny bit of a very much needed nap. Mr. Pratt gave us a really good sermon about living to Christ, and I enjoyed the hymns. We have had a talk, my John and I, about death, and I asked him which of us had better go first, and, to my surprise, he said he thought I should. I am sure that was noble and unselfish in him, but I am not going to have even a wish about it. God only knows which had better go first, and which stay and suffer. Some of his children must go into the furnace to testify that the Son of God is there with them. I do not know why I should insist on not being one of them. Sometimes I almost wish we were not building a house. It seems as if it might stand in the way if it should happen I had a chance to go to heaven. I should almost feel mean to do that, and disappoint my husband, who expects to see me so happy there. But, oh, I do so long to be perfected myself, and to live among those whose one thought is Christ, and who only speak to praise Him. I like you to tell me, as you do in your East Dorset letter, how you spent your time, etc. I have an insatiable curiosity about even the outer life of those I love, and of the inner one you cannot say too much. Goodbye. We shall have plenty of time in heaven to say all we have to say to each other. End of chapter 8, part 2, recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.